Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is 1 John 4, 7 through 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he is in us. He has given us of his spirit, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And as he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest as the rest of us are seated. Hello. Um, my name is uh, Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace. And Jason, I think, said it well that this is an opportunity for us together to worship. And I often think before coming up here, so what place, what role does this moment, this, where we open up God's Word, how is that an act of worship? How is that part of this idea of worshiping God? Well, I have a couple thoughts about that um, that I want to share just before we pray and go into the Word. That it's an act of worship because we are acknowledging something about God's Word. And not necessarily this Word, but His Word of speaking to us. That God is a God who speaks and that we are people who can receive from God. So there's this opportunity within worship to receive from the God who wants to talk to us, which is a really wonderfully beautiful, crazy thing that God of the universe, who's created all of this, wants to talk to you and to me and to all of us. The other idea is that it's really, it puts us, or at least it puts me, in this posture of, of humility to say that I need the Word of God in order to know what it is he is, he is doing, his vision for the world, 
So it's an act of worship in our, in our ability to say, okay, God, this is about you, not about me. See, the cool thing about this time together is that we're oriented to the God who, who loves us so deeply that he has given us one another and he's given us opportunity to really help one another point our attention or direct our attention onto God, onto the good shepherd, because he is ultimately the good shepherd. I, nor other pastors here at Grace, we don't have that mantra. I cannot tell you I am the good shepherd, um, but God himself does. And so these are opportunities to be oriented and directed toward the one, toward the good one who wants to lead us through the pastures of life, through the dark valleys, and through all of the different things that we experience. So would you just take a moment with me to pray, to ask that the good shepherd this morning would speak to us afresh? God, you are good, and your word does say that you do lead us, that you are the good shepherd who leads us, that we shall not be in want or in need, that you provide I pray this morning that you would provide for us an opportunity to experience you in a fresh way. I ask that, that, we, that you would help us, that you would help me to have ears to listen. That you would help me to have eyes to see the people around me. And to hear from them and your words of love through them to me and to all of us. Thank you that you've brought us together. Thank you that we are the church, able to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a film came out last year called Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, Fred Rogers, it's about Mr. Rogers. You know, have you heard, you've, who's seen this? Not enough of you. Um, because really, we're talking about First John 4, we're talking about the love of God, and that documentary does a way better job of, of putting that on display than I think any sermon ever could. And I'm actually not even being dramatic about that. If you watch that and you're not compelled by what, makes, what the love of God makes possible, then I don't, I don't know about you. Um, so here's the thing about that film. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is based on the premise. He was a, a person who, who actually went to seminary. He was a minister. But he had this vision that he wanted to use the media as a way to, um, not just in, in response to some of the chaotic television programming that was for children, but as an opportunity to invite children into a space where they might experience love. That he had this vision that if kids recognize that they are unique, that they are loved for like, in just the way that they are, that they would then somehow, some way, be transformed by that reality. I can't help but think about 1 John 4 when I think about Fred Rogers' vision. When, he, when PBS was in, in need of money, of, I think about $20 million, he, he goes in front of the Senate, and he was one of the last people to basically argue his case for why public broadcasting needed money. And he doesn't give a long speech. He doesn't give an argument. He simply just talks about his vision. And he says, you know, I think Senator Pastore is the person he's talking to. He said, I, I want to give children 
the tools, the understanding that feelings are both mentionable and manageable. That one of the things that children need most is to grow up in, in a family in which trust is like the operating mode between relationships or within relationships. And so he said, one of the things that I, I ask, and we have a song that we sing, is what do you do with the mad that you feel? And over and over he begins to talk, and the senator's like, well, you just got your money. Because he's so compelled by this idea that if, if, if this could actually seep into the hearts and minds of these children, that things would be different. Well, in this text, in 1 John 4, there's this fundamental belief as well. That if we grasp the extravagant, crazy nature of God's love, then we might actually be different people. That is the vision of this text that was read to us this morning. And here is what I want to explore, is, is this relationship between love and fear. Because that is one of the things that the text talks about, is that perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. So here's my question. What are you afraid of? And I want you to think about that for just a couple seconds. What are you afraid of? And I'm not talking about these surface-level fears or phobias. Like, I'm not a big fan of spiders, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like these deep down, at the core of who you are and how you live, what are you afraid of? Just take a moment and consider that. Reminds me, actually, that silence reminds me of something that Mr. Rogers did in a documentary or in an interview. He said, do you want to know what a minute feels like? And he was just silent in the interview for one minute. I'm not going to do that to you, but because um, it would be awkward for me as well. But in that silence, in that space, I wonder what came to mind. What are you afraid of? Maybe what came to mind is this fear of, of not having enough. Enough of... Whatever might fill in the blank for you. Enough comfort, enough stuff, enough peace. Maybe it's this fear of, of loneliness, that how you feel now is how you will always feel. That you will never experience the sense of belonging that you see everyone else around you seem to have. Maybe it's this fear for you parents that you're messing up your children that you're not making the right choices or that you're not giving them the right experiences or you're not a good enough mother or father. Maybe it's this fear that you're messing them up. Maybe it's this fear that, oh, if I just would have taken that one chance that is so far behind me that's not even a possibility, my life would be totally different. This fear now that the future is this thing that looks so lame but it would have been so great if that one moment would have been different. Or maybe it's this fear that you married the wrong person. Or maybe it's this fear that what you're doing with your life and how you spend most of your time doesn't matter much and doesn't amount to a lot. Maybe it's this fear that there's just too much conservatism in the world. Or there's just too much progressivism. 
there's too many people wanting to go back to the way things were, or there are too many people who want things to be different and are too tolerant. Maybe that's what you're afraid of. Maybe you're afraid of what is happening to the church or in the church. Or maybe you're afraid that the church doesn't matter much at all. What are you afraid of? What fears did you carry in here this morning? What fears do you operate out of? And chances are, if you're like me, you don't even know. Right? There's so many times that we're living life in certain ways, and things set us off, and then we're confronted with, wait, what? why did that just happen? We were threatened in some way. We were operating out of a fear we didn't even know we had. But see, 1 John 4 makes this audacious claim. If you want to turn your Bibles to 1 John 4, 1023 in the Blue Bibles, below you. Starting in verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Will actually um, helped me understand that there's a, there's a way of, of thinking about verse 18, which I find really fascinating. It says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And there's a sense that fear carries with it its own punishment. Fear has its own type of agony. And isn't that true? That the fears we carry almost seem like they're torturous. It seems like they're plaguing us, they're weighing us down. So this fear brings with it its own sense of agony and burden. But it says, and here's what's crazy, is that somehow perfect love says that will be abolished. That will not be a thing. There is no fear in love. So how does this work out? How, is, how are the dynamics of fear and love at play? Well, here's how I think about it. Often, our fears, my fears, I can't talk about your fears, but I can talk about mine. My fears come from this, this idea that I am the author of my own story. Here's another way to put it. It's who is basically the script writer of your life? Who is writing your script? Who is writing my script? And often I live in such a way that I am the one who is writing my own script. If you were to go on a movie set or in a play and you saw all these people with things of pieces of paper, they would all have the same script. They would all have the same lines so that they know what is actually supposed to be taking place. They know the vision of the story and how they're supposed to be and act within that story. Well, often I think in my genius that I am the one who's responsible for that story, for that script, that I am writing my own story. Well, see, my fears then come into play whenever that story is threatened. Whenever I might come up against somebody who says, that's not the story. It's my story. And I say, well, you're a loser. It's not true. 
get thee behind me. I mean, this, the thing is, is like we, we are often acting with one another with our own versions of the script and the story, with our own visions of what the good life is. So what do you envision the good life to be? Chances are, however you might answer that, if it's not the vision given to us by God in the biblical story, then it's one that you've conjured up and you've created, and it's the one that you're living out of. We are all living out of scripts of some sort, and the question is, which one are you, which one am I living out of? If I'm not living out of the the vision, the story, the script that God has given me, then any moment when that is threatened, I will respond out of fear. I will respond to another person as if they're getting in the way. I might even respond to God as if he's getting in the way. But we need to believe, or what if we were to believe, that the author of the story was the God who came to us in Jesus Christ. The author of the story was the God who through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ gave himself up for us. What if the author of the story was Christ the King to whom we had nothing to prove? What if he is the one who has written the script of our lives, of our life together? What if that was what we actually lived by? How might I interact with God differently? How might I interact with others differently? Reminds me of Jesus. There's so many stories in the Gospels when Jesus... Coming onto the scene, he confronted these people who were living out of a a different type of script. And they're called the Pharisees. And the thing about the Pharisees is they get a bad rap, for good reason. But we often give them a bad rap because we don't want to be like them. Turns out we're a lot like the Pharisees. Um, But Because Jesus, when he comes on the scene, the Pharisees are like, who is this guy? You look at all these stories when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector or when he, when he talks to Zacchaeus, another tax collector, and he's at table with them. What do the Pharisees say? Who is this guy who eats with tax collectors and sinners? What does he think he's doing? Well, these Pharisees are living out of a script, a certain way, a vision of the good life, that includes the good, the good way of being holy, the good way of being faithful, the good, all these different ways of living. And Jesus confronts that. And they feel threatened. And they hold Jesus at bay. Because he is different than they ever imagined the script could ever be. And I wonder, how do I do that? How am I like the Pharisees in which I am living out of my own vision of the good life, my own script, And I hold others and Jesus at bay. The Pharisees were fearful of these people on the outside coming inside for fear that it would contaminate the community, that it would make it unclean. But Jesus flips the script, and he actually says, no, 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 it's not about the outside making the inside unclean. What if my presence makes the unclean clean? I mean, think about that for a minute. How easy it is to live in the script of fear, even as a church, to say, oh no, we can't let them in, whoever them might be. We can't let them be part of this, because they are going to contaminate all of this. What if 
The script was flipped, and it is our community together and our presence together that actually becomes a way of bringing about the goodness, kindness, holiness of God? What if it extends in a way that's really beautiful, through which God can work healing and repairing? I mean, that's an incredible vision. But it's Christ's vision. And it's flipped from how I often think. But how does this work? And that is the question that I felt like I was wrestling with all week long. This is great. Love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. Okay, I, th- I know I need to understand that God's love is so remarkably extravagant and so deep and so wide that I can't even comprehend it. That as Will talked about last week, through the cross that we are born into love and we grow up into love with one another. I get all of that up here. But how does that work in which it actually seeps down into my heart and becomes how I live? I don't know. See you later. No. Uh, well, here's one of the ways I think, I think it takes place. And I'm going to offer one practical practice to move forward with together in community. And it's this. And you're not going to like it. Confession. I think this is one place where we can live out and test the limits of God's love by being a community in which we are safe to confess, where we actually believe that God's love is so extravagant, so wide, so deep, and that his kindness is so infinite that I can then be who I am in front of another person completely, wholly, and fully, Can we be a place, can we be a church where we then receive people in their full and true and messy and complicated and confusing humanity? Is that actually possible? But I think this is the place where we actually begin to experience the love that casts out fear. Frederick Buechner says this, wonderful writer, um, spiritual writer, also a minister, a novelist, somebody I constantly go to because, one, his words are so beautiful, but he's so concerned with how are we at our core and who are we. He says, what we hunger for perhaps more than anything else is to be known in our full humanness. And yet that is often just what we also fear more than anything else. It is important to tell, at least from time to time, the secret of who we truly and fully are. Because otherwise, we run the risk of losing track of who we truly and fully are, and little by little come to accept, instead, the highly edited version which we put forth in hope that the world will find it more acceptable than the real thing. My question to you is, in your life, at this church, in this community of brothers and sisters united by Jesus, are you presenting a highly edited version of yourself? Do you actually think that is what is necessary for us to be in relationship to one another, is by presenting highly edited versions of ourselves? I love this quote because he says, one of the things we want 
We actually work against. We want to be known in our full humanness, but it's the thing we fear completely. And I understand this. I get this. It is so hard for me to be me, holy and fully, in front of other people. And, but here's one of the things that I find that I struggle with the most, is am I really loved? If we present highly edited versions of ourselves, that is the person who will be loved, not who you truly are. So if you are wondering, man, I don't know why I don't feel the love of God. I don't know why I don't, I don't experience God's love here in this place. I wonder if you are the one who's not actually being loved, but the person you're presenting before others, that is who is being loved. If we want to experience the love that casts out fear, may we be a people who take off our masks, which create lots of loneliness, and be ourselves before one another. What might God do? What might God do with our fears? Fears of not being enough, of not loving well, of not being good parents, fears of not being a good friend, fears of, of missing out on, on that one thing in the past, fear of not really having a place in the present or in the future, fear of, of, of not making a name for myself. I wonder if the love of God might cast all of those things out if we did not present highly edited versions of ourselves. So my question is, do you have places in your life where you can present yourself as you are? I had lunch with a friend this last week, and one of the things he said that stuck with me so much is he, he said, I want to be in a place, or I need, in relationship, to be absorbed by people. And what he was getting at, and it's, it's, it's such a profound comment, and it's something that I think means so much. What he's saying is, I need to be in a place where I can be myself, and where I can be absorbed in who I am completely, in all my faults, and in all my brokenness, and in all my attempts at being, at, at, at even recognizing them and, and shoring those up, but I need to be absorbed. And I, I, that language is really helpful because I started to think in my, in my thinking about God and my relationship to God, do I believe God can absorb me? Do my prayers reflect belief in a God who can absorb all of who I am? In all of my fears and brokenness and messiness and my joys, everything that makes Daniel Daniel, everything that makes you you, do you believe that God can absorb all of that? Or are you presenting a highly edited version of yourself before God? Chances are, if you are, you won't be able to experience the love of God. Because you aren't the one who's being loved. Somebody else's. A different version of yourself. Not completely and wholly you. But 1 John 4 says, because God first loved us, it actually makes it possible for us to be this way before God and before one another. But do we trust it? Jesus tells the story in Luke 18 where two people go up to the temple to pray. You know the story, but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Two people go up to the, to the temple to pray. One of them, right, he's, he's, he's this, this Pharisee, he's this religious guy, he's great. He goes up and there's also this tax collector who's, um, you know, people would rather not uh, interact with him. But one guy, the Pharisee, the religious leader, says, God, I am so grateful I am not like that guy. 
Thank you that I am not like him. And then the Pharisee, um, and then the tax collector goes up and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it is that one who goes home justified, according to the story. Is that the truth that undergirds our life as a community, as a family of Christ, or our interactions in our life with God? There's a prayer that the Orthodox Church, it's called the Jesus Prayer, that they pray often, and it's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is a prayer that they pray all the time. And it's a great, it seems like the prayer that, that we should all be praying all the time. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Could you imagine if we were a family who actually believed that I, like you, am a sinner? That, that you and I are the ones who God, whom God has called together to be in relationship. That actually it is not because of, of what you bring to the proverbial table that makes you anything, but it's what you receive here. This is what makes us who we are. The body and blood of Jesus, the life, death, and resurrection of the God who came to us in the person of Jesus. There's nothing else that makes sense of my life or of your life or our lives together. Because if something else does, then chances are we are going to be defined by partisan politics. And I'm not even talking necessarily about the politics out there, though that is true, but the politics that happens within us all the time. But Jesus, Jesus is the one who defines us. And our need for him is what brings us together. That is amen. That truly is amen. Um, this is a long, this is a longer quote, but it has affected me so deeply. I'm going to read it. Some of it will be projected, but I want you, not yet, that's later, not yet. Good work. <laughs> but this, this man named Richard Beck wrote, wrote a book called The Slavery of Death in which he argues that it's actually our fear of dying. Physical, spiritual, um, vocational, any type of death that you can think of. We are slaves to the fear of death so much that we actually end up operating out of those fears. And here's what he talks about in terms of, of being an antidote to that fear. He says, notice in Acts 4 that there were no needy persons among them. Why? Because they shared with anyone who had need. The expression of neediness in the community allowed the economy of love to flow. But in churches in America and other places where affluence poses special problems, the situation is very different. These cultures are enslaved to the fear of death and death avoidance, and it holds serious sway. What results is neurotic image management, the pressure to be fine. The perversity here is that on the surface, American churches do look like the church in Acts 4. There are no needy persons among us. We all appear to be doing just fine, thank you very much. But we know this is to be a sham, a collective delusion. I'm really not fine, and neither are you. But you are afraid of me, and I'm afraid of you. And we are neurotic about being vulnerable with each other. 
We fear exposing our need and failure to each other. And because of this fear, the fear of being needy within a community of neediness, the witness of the church is compromised. A collection of self-sustaining and self-reliant people, people who are all pretending to be fine, is not the kingdom of God. It's a church built upon the delusional anthropology we described earlier. Specifically, a church where everyone is fine is a group of fearful people working hard to keep up appearances and unable to trust each other to the point of loving self-sacrifice. In such a church, each member is expected to be self-sufficient and self-sustaining, thus making no demands upon others. Unfortunately, where there is no need and no vulnerability, there can be no love. Oh, snap, shots fired. What he's... What, what he is getting at is this sense that we actually don't appear to need anything. Because we actually live as though we don't. But one of the greatest gifts that we can give to the world, when the church isn't being compromised, it's when we say, oh, I need all the time. When we are able to be vulnerable with one another, when we are able to present something other than a highly edited version of ourselves, then, and only then, can love flow. That is the only possible beginning of love. Is where we can be with one another in who we are. That is when fear will no longer be because we are testing the limits of the truth that God is love. And that is what brings us together. I began with, won't you be my neighbor? I'm going to end with, won't you be my neighbor? There's this one moment, and I cry every time. It's when, when Fred Rogers is, well, Francois Clemens, one of the characters, he's telling this story about how Fred Rogers would constantly say to him, I love you just the way you are. Right? And he would say that to him just in, in, in terms of their culture of, of, of making this show. And one day, the, Francois Clemens says, wait, Fred, are you talking to me? And he says, you know what? I've been talking to you for two years. And you've just now heard it. And Francois tells the story that he could do nothing other than just collapse into Fred's arms. Tears down his face because something happened. The love actually took hold. Well, I think God is telling us and has been not just for two years but our whole lives that he loves us and that this love has the ability to cast out fear and my prayer is that we together might hear it again or for the first time but always and be transformed by that truth amen so there's an opportunity, and I think it's really appropriate. There are going to be people on the sides here who want to pray with you. And I don't know what's going on inside of you or in your internal world right now, but prayer is a way in which we can experience and encounter God's love, in particular through another person who wants to pray with you. So as people move to the sides to pray with you, I encourage you to test the limits of God's love that perhaps 
God really does love you to the extent that 1 John 4 is talking about, to the extent that Jesus reveals through his life, death, and resurrection. Maybe that is true. Take the risk to test the possibility of that. And I wonder if in that risk you might encounter the love that casts out fear. So please, if, if you are praying, um, move to the sides, and we're going to continue in our worship together.